This is the last episode in our first series about Judah and the Maccabean Revolt. In this show, we're going to do our best to avoid cliches, but history is full of them. And we have Judah in our first two episodes on an ostentatious rise. And so the historical cliche demands a fall. And that's very much what the third episode of the Hammer of Hanukkah is, the fall of Judah Maccabee. Now, Judah's fall is obscured by the sources and centuries of agendas at work over the reputation of Judah. But even through all that, I think we see some of what Judah is really made of. I think I've been pretty clear up to this point in the series that Judah is contemptible in many ways. He's very violent, he has no room for disagreement, and he's an extremist. And despite all those things, maybe because of them, he's very successful in his endeavors. And actually, Judah is more successful than Judah ever would have even realized, because, spoiler alert, he's not going to make it to the end of this story, and he's not going to see his ultimate victory. And that's the first Jewish king in the Holy Land in almost 500 years. Welcome back to Religious Wars. If I sound a little different, that's because we had a gear upgrade here at Religious Wars HQ. I hope it's as obvious as it was expensive. Before we get back to Judah, who is really cock of the walk after retaking Jerusalem, taking it on a technicality, but here nor there, let's do a recap of how Judah got to where he is, as it has taken me six months to tell this story. First, the Maccabean revolt starts when Judah Maccabee's father, Matthias, can no longer take the encroachments of the king on his faith and stabs a representative, remember, who loves the law. From there, Matthias and the Maccabees undertook a kind of terrorism campaign where they killed people for worshiping the wrong gods, stole food, and did general recruitment for their hyper-religious cause. This cause, of course, being against Hellenism, the Greeks, and the Jews who supported those Greeks. Short time after, Matthias dies, passes the reins over to Judah. Judah continues very much in the same vein that his father taught him, guerrilla war, terrorism, forced circumcisions, so much so that the Greek authorities eventually decide they have to do something about this, they can't just sit on their hands anymore, and that first response comes in the form of a man named Apollonius. Remember, we described it as video game levels. Apollonius is level one for Judah Maccabee. While Judah Maccabee breezes past Apollonius with a quick ambush, setting a theme for the Maccabees, hit-and-run tactics, but also shows some real ingenuity from Judah, shows us that he can pick a good spot to ambush, and that his soldiers, such as they were at that time, at least could fight well enough that with the element of surprise they could kill a relatively low-level Greek general. The Maccabees suffer very few casualties, maybe closer to none, who knows. So after Judah kills Apollonius and steals his sword and continues to use it, the next real test for Judah Maccabee came in the form of a man named Siron, Siron was kind of a lateral move in terms of 
Seleucid authority, but we still described him as level two. In the battle against Siron, Judah picks a different place to have this fight because Siron comes from another direction, but the result and tactics are mostly identical. There's an ambush, the army is decapitated, its leader killed, and then the Maccabees were told mow down these Seleucids when they retreat. Now, Judah is getting more and more popular as every day goes by, and he's also becoming more and more feared, both of which are driving more and more people under his hyper-religious Jewish banner. Judah's political authority after the defeat of Sarah grows so much so that he has a kind of grand muster. At this grand muster, he sends a good chunk of his army home, it may have been part of a ploy to throw off the advancing Seleucid generals named Georgius and Nicanor. If you remember, Judah waited until Georgius, the cavalry commander, was heading toward his camp and then marched in the same direction as the incoming army but toward their camp defeated Nicanor's men who were left over at the camp, and then when Georgius saw the victorious Maccabees, he wanted nothing to do with them and just rode on by. And after Judah defeats Nicanor and Georgius, he gets the head honcho at this point for the Seleucid state, Lysias. Now, Lysias is only a regent for the Seleucid king, but head honcho nonetheless Lysias brings a massive army. First Maccabees says like 60,000 guys or something like that. Ridiculous, no way it's true, but that's what it says. You can assume it was a larger than normal army, 20,000 guys, and the Maccabees turn this great army back. Send them back into Antinoch. Except, of course, we know they went back to Antinoch because Antinoch is Epiphanes, the actual Seleucid king, fighting in Babylon, kicks the bucket. And Lysias needs to return to Antinoch to maintain his position of power. However hollow this victory actually is, it doesn't look that way to the people of Jerusalem. It looks like these raving mad warlords, as I'm sure a huge chunk of the city thought of the Maccabees, actually won. They're actually in the temple. And I mean, think about how surreal it would have to be for someone like Judah or one of, just one of his soldiers. When you've finally taken back Jerusalem, when you've cleansed the second temple of all the abominations that were going on in there, this story started in 169. We're in 162 now. It's been a while, but it hasn't been so long. A lot of these guys would have been regulars at the temple at least a few times a year. Now, they've had a better chunk of a decade without stepping foot inside. Suddenly, they're back to where they were most comfortable, and they're a completely different man. These people would have been farmers, bakers, maybe they would have worked with textiles. Now they're a stone-cold killer. It would have to be the most gratifying experience for the real diehards in Judah's army, like Judah himself. Certainly this would prove that God, Yahweh, was absolutely in your corner, and you are blessed. You should see how the books of Maccabees gloat after Antiochus Epiphanes dies. It's a kind of divine retribution, you know? But like we said at the end of last episode, though this victory is monumental, Judah has more problems now, arguably, than when he was 
a bandit in the Gophna Hills. In the city of Jerusalem is the Acre, full of Seleucid soldiers and Hellenized Jews. It's something that you would think the Maccabees would just tear down the fortifications and storm the building, but apparently they can't do that. Otherwise, they would have. It would make a lot of sense for them to. In fact, not tearing down the Acre, not laying siege to it or doing whatever they need to to starve out the remaining Hellenizers in Jerusalem, who are still against the Maccabees very openly. I mean, they're shut inside, but they're open about being against the Maccabees. Not tearing down the Acre leads me to question a huge chunk of the next chapter in Judah's story, if you will. Because after taking the temple, Judah is going to set to solve some of his myriad of problems that exist all around him. And he's going to do that by a series of military actions. In 1 Maccabees, there's a fairly detailed account of these actions. Judah and his boys storm cities, tear down the walls, and slaughter everybody inside. Scary stuff. I don't think it really happened, though. Now, obviously, I don't know any of this really happened, but I think there's a bare bones of truth to the events we've talked about so far, at least the way we've talked about them. But this next imperial stage in Judah's life, I find just so improbable that I'm not even going to do a step-by-step, here's what I think is true, here's what I don't. I don't want to do that for this next stage in his life because it just feels like repeating Hasmonean propaganda. And that Hasmoneans are the dynasty that will eventually will control Jerusalem not long after the this story. So instead of giving a real detailed account of this next year or so of Judah's career, I'm just going to list some of the reasons I find this tale, this part of this tale anyway, so far-fetched, so beyond the pale, even for a story that's already incredible and unbelievable on occasion. Like most of the chapters in this story, it's very violent. That's not a reason to inherently disbelieve it. A lot of this story has been very violent, but the reasons for this violence, at least the ones given to us from the authors of the books of Maccabees, don't really square with my sense of reality. Judah invades a bunch of nearby cities, at least so he says, and the reason he does this is he gets letters from Jews living in these cities saying, we're being horribly mistreated, we need someone to come rescue us. Now, off the top of my head... Are political or ethnic brethren being mistreated in this land so we need to go invade it is an excuse for invasion that has been used by Greeks, Romans, the Ottomans, the English, the French, Nazis, and communists. Just about every belligerent force in world history has used this excuse as a pretense for invasion before. And every single time I hear it, even in modern times... It's like in Family Feud, when someone gets an answer wrong, just, eh, don't think so, not buying it. The other thing is all these, air quotes, cities Judah's supposed to have taken in this time are all places that the Hasmonean dynasty after Judah 
are going to try to incorporate into their kingdom, bring into the fold. Some of them have large Jewish populations, some of them don't. It's possible because the Hasmonean dynasty would do this, I think probably the last Jews ever to do this. But later in the Hasmonean dynasty, they'll do a little bit of converting by the sword, and it's possible some of that went on here too. Anyway, it's just very convenient for later Hasmonean rulers that Judah laid claim to these places already. Little too convenient, in my opinion. Thirdly, I think these stories are very hard to believe because they're talking about places, some places we don't, we're not exactly sure where they're talking about, places called like Tobiad. Some places are regions in modern Israel, like, like Gilead. But the point is, a lot of them, as described by First Maccabees anyway, are walled cities that Judah manages to take. And sometimes it's not even Judah doing it. They have other Simon, one of Judah's brothers, going in and leading troops, taking them to rescue Jews and things like that. Impossible to believe. Why? Because the Acre is still in Jerusalem. If the Maccabees were capable of taking down fortifications, they would have done it literally in their own backyard before they started going all about the Middle East, looking for every Jew who isn't under their control already. Think about what a symbol of Seleucid power, of Greek power. Remember, this whole thing's about Hellenism and whether or not people should come into this Greek way of life. Hard to dissuade people who might be inclined toward a bit more liberal, gossamer existence in a Greek city-state, a Greek polis. It'd be hard to convince them that the Greeks don't have a lot of power there when you can't get rid of this giant symbol of Greek power. And not just a symbol, but an instrument of Greek power. So what most likely happened in this period is Judah paid retribution on villages nearby. It probably was very bloody. The massacre of everybody in the town or city of Tobiad is pretty gruesome reading. So I think some Jews who... The Maccabees were looking to punish for how Greek they were dressing and praying and all that stuff. Met their ends in this era. It wasn't glorious combat. It was a bit more of the same. They do talk about tearing down altars and stuff. So I think it's just straight up the Maccabean terrorism we've come to know and love in this program. Just on a more organized mass scale. Again, if they could take cities and lay siege to walled communities, they would have done it in Jerusalem. But they can't, so they didn't. Now, this is a pretty, not a huge chunk of the story, but there's some excitement I'm skipping over here. There are battles that I am just choosing not to get into because they're confusing, more so than normal anyway, probably because they're entirely fictional. There's a kind of recurring rival for Judah, a Greek named Timotheos. Judah regularly destroys his army, but then he comes back again, so how destroyed could that army have been, you know? Georgius, the cavalry commander, makes another appearance too. Judah destroys that army, but doesn't get Georgius. And it seems like whenever the Maccabees really win anything, they kill the commander. But I encourage you to go check that out if you want more of those dubious details. Uh, it's an another thing is it's a, it's a sabbatical year in the area around Jerusalem. So the Maccabees are low on food. They're straight up just stealing from these people around them. I think, anyway. Non-historian, non-expert. 
the things that I think are true from this period that will become important to not just this story, but the story of the history of Jews more, is one of the first things Judah does once Lysias turns tail and gets out of Jerusalem is make a deal with Rome. Rome has been pretty friendly to the Maccabees, and in First Maccabees, it's a big deal. In Jewish history, it kind of remains a big deal. It's sort of the first time we know of for sure that Romans and Jews came together politically, officially. It's pretty unlikely that the Romans took this message very seriously, just a little bit of a, oh yeah, wait, good, great, good for you guys. But I do believe that happened. I do believe that some of Judah's brothers started taking a more serious role in military affairs. That probably happened, though they were probably directing raids for food and massacres and not heroic rescue missions. And I also think in this period there was a kind of coalescence of Hasmonean theology. This was a kingdom in the Promised Land who wanted to rule all Jews, wanted to bring as many Jews back to the Promised Land as possible. That's not an uncommon goal, historically anyway, for Jews necessarily, but it wouldn't have been on every Jew's mind at the time. That's one thing we don't get from the Bible, by the way, is there seems to be a lot of diversity among Jews in this period. And the further back you go, the more there seems to be. But, you know, Judah has his way with diversity in, among the Jewish population where he's around with his merry band of men. Judah comes from the my way or die school of theological differences, you could say. At any rate, since I'm not going to get into the specifics of Judah's raids, this kind of, like we called it before, an imperial period in Judah's history. I think we've talked about all we can really know and all that's really important from that time period. We do know that near the end of his expeditions, or perhaps during, it's not exactly clear, Judah does decide to lay siege to the Acre. It is relatively unsuccessful, and at some points when the authors of 1st Maccabees are relaying this siege, it kind of seems like the Maccabees are the ones being besieged by the Seleucids and the Hellenistic Jews inside the Acre. And we should talk for a minute about what an Acre is exactly. It's a feature of the Seleucid Empire. And the Seleucids aren't the only empire in history to do something like this, but... An Acre is a piece of Seleucid authority within any city. So all the Seleucid cities, Antinoch, Apamea, Seleucia, all these cities would have had an Acre in them. And the idea was the city would run how it would always run, but the Seleucid Empire would build a kind of citadel, and it would act as a center for political authority, as an administrative center. Sometimes they're a garrison but an Acre is a building in a Seleucid city that represents the interests of the empire above even that city always. Judah's power wouldn't look completely legitimate to even Jews who were sympathetic to him in Jerusalem. It certainly would give the Hellenizers hope that the battle was not lost. And Judah's authority over Jerusalem can't really be said to be total if there's a Seleucid garrison with antagonistic Jews in there waiting for the moment to make a move against Judah and the Maccabees. At the end of these 
imperial campaigns Judah goes on, the siege of the Acre really picks up. And I'm kind of picking and choosing here what I choose to believe and what I choose to disregard and what I choose to share with you and what I choose not to, but I'm just feeling around here for what, based on everything I've read, seems most likely to be true. And it makes sense that Judah would besiege the Acre. Doesn't make sense that he didn't do it earlier, but you get the impression that it was taking a lot more guys than he thought it would. Something, anyway. Now, during this siege, where, again, the Maccabees, depending on what verse you're in in the books of Maccabees, it seems as though they're getting their asses handed to them as they're trying to take down this fortress. Now, at some point in this siege, Melanos, the Hellenistic high priest, manages to escape this siege. Now, the fact that literally the most important man in the entire structure was able to sneak out during a siege leads me to believe that this siege was not very good at all. I mean, I can think of Roman sieges later that would have two layers of walls and a dead man zone for artillery if anybody tried to get out. I don't know if Melanos put on a wig or something, but it's pretty embarrassing. Now, Melanos makes it back to Antinoch. Now, remember, Lysias is back in Antinoch because the king had just died in Babylon. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of bureaucratic things that need taken care of when the king dies. For a person in Lysias's position, the most important thing for him to do was get back to Antinoch and get control of the 8-year-old, 12-year-old... Depends where you check. Son of Antinochus Epipon- Epiphanes, Antinochus IV, Antinochus V. Part of the reason Lysias needed to get control of the king so fast and take care of all this bureaucratic stuff right away is he's a regent with no claim to the throne, really. So he needed physical control of the boy king in order to assure his position. Because out in Babylon, with half of the Seleucid army, there's another guy who was Antinochus Epiphanes' number two on campaign, a guy named Philippos. Lysias is not a dumb guy. He had been steeped in the world of post-Alexandrian Hellenistic Empire politics. It would have been obvious to him that Philippos was a threat. Guy with half the army, been fighting for more than a year at that point. But Philippos has a long way to come back still. And now Lysias has this high priest that the dead king installed in Judea, telling him that the Acre, the great symbol of Seleucid power, was coming close to falling. This may or may not have been true. Melanos had every incentive to try and get Lysias to come back to Jerusalem with a big Greek army to really, you know, kick Judah in the head. And no matter how poorly managed the siege that Judah put on was, there's no way the Acre could hold out forever. From Lysias's perspective, this situation is completely untenable. He's not in a situation where he can look weak at all. Think of the world we're in here, right? If Lysias, who if you remember from episode two of this series, was Lysias was a guy, along with another guy named Ptolemaeus, who really wanted to break bread with the Maccabees, try and find a reasonable solution here. Can't blame a guy for trying, but 
Judah Maccabee is a lot of things. Reasonable is not one of them. But still, he's a guy who's trying to make deals with these rebels, and now they're about to topple over a great symbol of Seleucid power. It seems odd that Lysias would drop everything he had going on in Antioch, what with the death of the king, and head down to Judea because it's been so unimportant up until this point. But it might be more political than strategic. He just has to get this thing done. Or Philippos will have just another arrow in his quiver when he comes in to try and take the regency away from Lysias. So, what does Lysias do? Well, for the second time, he assembles a grand army. Remember, when Antiochus Epiphanes went to Babylon, he left half, according to the books of Maccabees, of the Seleucid army with Lysias. The number of troops Lysias is said to have had in 1 Maccabees is 100,000 men, 20,000 cavalry, and I believe 22 war elephants. More contemporary estimates put the war elephants at like eight, but even that is debated and debatable, and 100,000 men is ridiculous. But of course, no one knows what is in the realm of possibility even. I see a lot of stuff around the 20,000 range is possible because it was a very large army, just not, I mean, 100,000 men. Now, still, 20,000 men, that's only one-fifth of 100,000. It's still a whole lot for anybody to have to worry about. Lysias will take his army the exact same way he took the first time he and Judah squared off with the large army with Lysias at the helm, which I think is another indication that Lysias was pretty happy with how he performed the first time he came around Judea. The last time Judah and Lysias crossed swords was at a place called Beth Zer. This is on the same path, but it's going to be at a place called Beth Zechariah. Now, this battle is one of the more fantastic in the Bible, or in the holy books, in my opinion. Of course, the authors of the books of Maccabees have every incentive to make the Seleucids as big and scary as possible here, but I think it's totally within the realm of reason that the Seleucid army was really scary. A lot of modern historians, and even not even just modern historians, people very far back pointed out that a lot of the amazing stuff the books of Maccabees talk about with regards to the Seleucid army at Beth Zachariah is from literary conventions, stuff from plays and things like that. Myths, stories from history that everybody at the time even knows are kind of mm, not exactly true. But certainly, some of those myths would have impacted the Seleucid army, right? Even if it was made up that, for example, it's said that this Seleucid army at Beth Zechariah has polished their shields and armor to such a degree that when the sun would catch any part of them, it would reflect light off and send these dancing light displays all over the mountainsides and into the eyes of the Maccabee soldiers. And when they would march, it would have this disco ball effect of light shooting out of the army. They also had people in strategic positions in the hillsides screaming to make it this otherworldly echo sound using the natural terrain in this kind of very clever 
maybe not true, but honestly, why not? I think it's entirely plausible, or at least something like it is. I think the Seleucids had the ability and the motivation to make themselves seem as supernaturally imposing to the Maccabees and a disco ball army with a thunderous voice from the gods might be a way to do it. All this stuff is questioned. Historians even question if there were mountains at Beth Zachariah, like the topography that's described in the books of Maccabees doesn't make any sense for where it's supposed to have occurred. That said, there are other indicators that something about the events described in first and second book of Maccabees are mostly true, or at least something like this happened. So let's get into the details of the Battle of Beth Zechariah here. Judah and the Maccabees' primary focus at the time Lysias heads south with Antonacus V, which must have been a bit strange for Lysias to be on campaign with a young kid who he has to keep relatively happy. Under different circumstances, that could be a very funny oddball comedy movie. Get Ice-T to play Lysias or something like that. Judah and his army are laying siege to the Acre. Now, we talked about the siege a little bit. Melanos gets out. Not a very good siege. At some times, it sounds like the Maccabees are being besieged, while other people are inside the building that they're trying to lay siege to. But Judah gets word that Lysias is coming down with his great host. Now, if you remember the last time Lysias came down, he left because Antonacus Epiphanes died in Babylon. So Lysias didn't really have time to solidify his victory, to really take it to the Maccabees and lay out terms. Maybe Judah started to believe his own hype a little bit and thought that that victory was his. It's also pretty likely that the Maccabees have a larger army than the first time they fought Lysias. So for Judah and his army, in their own minds, I think they have this idea that they are unstoppable at the moment. They're bigger, badder than they were before. And, of course, I'm sure they believe that God is on their side. So they feel like they can't lose. And indeed, when Judah leaves the Acre to go meet Lysias and his great host at the mountain pass at Beth Zechariah, the books of Maccabees tell us that all these smoke and mirrors tricks the Greeks are doing have no effect on the Maccabees. If anything, it excites them. Not even the 8 or 22 or however many war elephants were really intimidating the Maccabees at all. And we should talk about these war elephants for a second because, come on, they're war elephants, it's awesome. What do you think of when you think of a war elephant? How would you outfit one? How many people do you put on it? Just one guy driving it like a horse? Does that make sense? What we get from the books of Maccabees does not make a ton of sense, and you can even... In the pictures that I was talking about at the beginning of episode two, a lot of medieval authors and illustrators kind of got that the word-for-word text from the books of Maccabees didn't really make a lot of sense either because in First Maccabees, they say that there's like dozens of troops up on top of these elephants and they've built these towers that house archers and spearmen and they're throwing missiles down at the Jews and the Jews are shooting up and throwing spears back up at these people driving these elephants. But that's just too many guys to put on one animal. And not only that, but a large wooden structure. 
An elephant's strong enough to carry that stuff, sure, but it's not going to be... It's a big target. There's a later artist who was fascinated by the Maccabees named Gustav Dor, or Dore, I'm not exactly sure. But he draws these elephants to look a bit more like they're described in the books of Maccabees. They're giant, way bigger than regular elephants. We're talking five, six times as tall as the men in the frame. And they have legitimate fortifications on their backs, just stuffed with people. Maybe that is what it looked like, but I prefer some of the medieval drawings that have more of like a bucket that these people are sitting in. A driver on the front of the elephant steering it with the reins, and then a guy or two or three in a kind of turret shooting out at people. Sort of like uh, the way chariots used to work in ancient, 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 ancient warfare in Egypt and Sumeria and stuff. But they, instead of being a chariot that's fast with a bowman inside... They're a bit slower, but a lot bigger and more imposing. Now, of course, again, the only real details we get are some stuff that most historians don't think is really true. The armor, the echoes, the dozens of people on elephants. And all we're told about the fighting is that it's going very well for the Maccabees. Now, as the Maccabees are pushing the Seleucid army back, Eleazar, Judah's brother, spies one elephant that's a bit more magnificent than all the other one. It's a bit bigger. It's armored. These elephants, by the way, are armored like a tank. But this one elephant is a bit bigger than everybody else. Its armor's a bit more regal. And the man driving it and the people on it look a bit more high class, high status than the rest of the Seleucid army. So Eleazar assumes the driver of this elephant is Lysias himself. And if you can remember the introduction of The Hammer of Hanukkah Part 2... This is where Eleazar has his big martyrdom moment. Eleazar sees this magnificent beast and charges at it like a heat-seeking missile. Just like the Maccabees have won all their other battles, by the way. It's probably not the first time that Judah or one of his brothers or another one of the Maccabees under their control went headlong for someone they assumed to be the leader of whatever force they were fighting. This is their MO. This is what they do. Eleazar runs up to this elephant, slides underneath it, and stabs it in the belly. And the elephant collapses on him and crushes him to death. We know now, of course, this was not Lysias on this elephant. Lysias probably wasn't on an elephant. Maybe he was on a horse, but we're not really sure. He may have been a bit further back taking care of the young Antinochus V. Either way, the elephant that Eleazar takes out is not a strategically important elephant. But it is an awesome story. Eleazar the Elephant Slayer, you know? But since Lysias was not on this elephant and this sacrifice of one of the Maccabean leaders amounts to nothing really, this is one of those pointless war sacrifices. Now, like I said before, the Maccabees, according to them, are doing really well here. Eleazar, hey, if that was Lysias, this whole thing goes in a different direction. But ultimately, Eleazar's sacrifice amounts to nothing. It would give him a lot of play with Christians, though. He has a kind of died-for-our-sins feel to this whole story. This is the kind of thing that a lot of armies would have bragged about if anything like this happened to them or with one of their generals or commanders, however you want to think about Judah Maccabee and his brothers in this conflict. 
but for a pretty amazing battle with an unbelievably large army. We don't get a lot of details in the fighting, but we get a lot of details about Eleazar stabbing this elephant. We don't get every detail, though. There's another telling of these events that is still less holy than either first or second books of Maccabees called The Scrolls of Antinochus. It has a lot of different details about Eleazar's fantastic death here. And they actually make a lot of sense, too, because instead of thinking that Lysias was on this one particularly gorgeous, tall, strong elephant, Eleazar's mission in this battle was to deal with the elephants. I think, personally, that this be-ready-to-attack-the-commander-no-matter-what idea is a way for the Hasmonean dynasty to kind of perpetuate their military philosophy. This is how the Hasmonean dynasty would fight, or at least how the Maccabees were fighting. But it doesn't make as much sense tactically rather than saying, okay, this commander is going to focus on the phalanx, this commander is going to focus on the cavalry, and this commander is going to focus on the elephants. To me, that rings a lot more true. Another little detail not included in the books of Maccabees, but included in the scrolls of Antinochus is the ultimate fate of Eleazar. Because in 1st Maccabees, it's very Disney. He's crushed. You don't see any blood, but you know he's gone. In the scroll of Antinochus, Eleazar's comrades can't find him at first. They're looking everywhere, which implies that the Maccabees killed more than one elephant, which would be pretty impressive, but who knows. But eventually, they do find the elephant that was on top of Eleazar, and instead of being crushed, which is kind of what you would want if you were Eleazar in this situation, they discover Eleazar's body relatively intact. They determine that the cause of death was drowning in elephant dung, which may not be true, but this is a Jewish source. Why would they include it? (laughs) It's pretty disgusting. Not something you would think God would want to sanction for one of his favorite soldiers, you know? One of the reasons we don't get a lot of details for any part of the battle other than Eleazar's amazing sacrifice, most historians think is because the Maccabees actually just get crushed in this battle. They meet the Seleucid phalanx in the field really for the first time and are just mowed over. And Eleazar's sacrifice is the only real reportable instance of any kind of success for the Maccabean cause. They think that because after this battle, the Maccabees never say they retreat, but they go back to the temple and Lysias follows them. So there's a retreat, not a victory here for the Maccabees. Now you got to feel for Lysias a little bit here because this is the second time, most likely, he's had Judah on the ropes. And Lysias is trying to figure out some terms to leave here because if he wanted to, he could probably slaughter everybody in the city. It wouldn't be outside of the scope of a Greek army, to do something like that in this era. But after all, this is Lysias' city. He doesn't want to break his own stuff as far as he's concerned. But before Lysias can engineer some ultimate end to the Maccabean cause, he has to prematurely leave Jerusalem again. This time, it's not because of the death of his king, but a challenge to his authority from Philippos. Because Philippos has been marching from the east, basically since Antonacus died, and now he's getting close to the capital. You can imagine him meeting with some of Lysias' supporters, telling them that, well, you know, if I was in charge, I'd take care of this whole Maccabean problem wherever Lysias is. 
You know, Antonak has trusted me to go on campaign with him and left Lysias to do all the administrative boring stuff. So for the second time in as many attempts, Lysias has to leave Jerusalem in this limbo under Judah's control and head back to the capital to deal with problems there. Now we're going to stick with Lysias for a second here because the next couple weeks of his life are going to be a real whirlwind for the Seleucid regent. Remember, all during the battle with the Maccabees, Lysias has the wee king of the empire, Antonacus V, with him. This helps keep him in good standing with the Seleucid elites because he has control of the king, therefore he has control over everything else. Lysias gets back to Antonach, deals with the Philippos problem. I'm not sure if Philippos is killed or if there's a battle, but in any case, Lysias remains unchallenged in his authority for a little while. He still has the Maccabee problem on his mind, but he, again, has just bigger fish to fry, needs to maintain his position, needs to maintain the position of the young Antonacus V. But we know that the Maccabee problem is still on his mind because Melanos is in the capital with him. We don't know for sure, but you can guess that Melanos is needling Lysias constantly. Put me back in charge. Put me back in charge. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. Lysias has to be thinking, no, you cannot. If it weren't for me and my protection, the Maccabees would have had you ripped into a million pieces. Melanos seems to disagree with his political prospects, and eventually Melanos becomes too much of a burden to Lysias to remain alive, and he is executed in Antinoch. Some people speculate that this might have been a Maccabean action, but that seems wildly implausible to me. So while turbulent, life is good for Lysias. That is until a delegation of Romans shows up in Antinoch. Now as much as Rome and the Seleucid army are allies, allies in some conflicts, remember at the very, very, very beginning of this story, we talked about Antinochus Epiphanes and the Roman emissary drawing a circle around him and saying, you, you make a decision before you get out of that circle. Rome had that kind of power over the king of another place because they had won a war against the Seleucids a generation earlier. This Roman emissary shows up in Antinoch, starts talking to Lysias. We don't really know if they talked about the Maccabees very much, but we do know that the Romans were very unhappy with Lysias because... Part of a deal that the Romans and the Seleucids had worked out is that the Seleucids were only going to be able to deploy this many men or this much cavalry at any given point, and Lysias had broken that rule. So that caused some issues for Lysias. The Seleucid Empire is kind of in turmoil at this point, at least in terms of leadership. Philippos had made his claim to regency. It probably got a lot of people excited, made a lot of promises. Lysias pushed him out. Now Lysias is having an issue with an antagonist ally, weird kind of relationship with Rome, and Lysias isn't the only powerful Seleucid. Kind of out of nowhere from our perspective, because this is not a show about the Seleucid Empire, a man named Demetrios made a claim to the throne and was ultimately successful. So Lysias, our main antagonistic figure since... Antonacus died, and his ward, the king, Antonacus V, are summarily executed by Demetrios, and he takes control of the Seleucid Empire. 
Now, Rome doesn't like this Demetrios guy either. Demetrios had grown up a ward of the Romans after the Seleucid-Roman War, so he may have had some bad blood for his captors. So Rome supports this guy named Heraclides. Heraclides and Demetrios fight it out for an additional two years, so that brings us to around 160. But eventually, Demetrios comes out on top. So now that's going to bring us to our third new king in this story for the Maccabees to go up against. Now, Demetrios just took over a huge, massive empire. It probably would have taken some time for him to get to the Maccabee file, but at some point he appoints a new high priest for Jerusalem. Might have been Lysias who appointed this guy, but either way, Demetrios accepts this. High priest appoints him himself. This is a man named Alchemos. Now, Alchemos was picked because he doesn't come from any of the warring factions. If you remember from the first episode, there were a kind of rotating cast of high priests going on. Some were Hellenizers, some were Obviously, for the Seleucids, it needs to be someone who's okay with Hellenism, but they understand now that they can't go too crazy with it. So he's an Hellenizer, but he's a moderate Hellenizer. He's going to try to be... All things to all people in Judea. And at first, he is broadly accepted by the Hellenizers who remain in Jerusalem. And even some of the more moderate allies to the Maccabees. Groups like the Hasidim, who are allies of the Maccabees, but willing to give this new guy a shot. So Demetrios either accepts this appointment or makes it himself, and then... He's got royal duties all over the empire to take care of. It's possible Demetrios had barely even heard of Judea or Jerusalem or even the Jews, really, before he took the throne. Now, you might be able to guess that this moderate Hellenizer high priest, who is even acceptable to some of the Maccabees' closest allies, was completely unacceptable to Judah and the Maccabees. The situation in Jerusalem over this kind of very turbulent period for the Seleucid state kind of reverted back to our first episode. Judah had lost some control and was back in the Gophna Hills doing kind of what they're best at, just straight up terrorism. Obviously, probably through Alchemos, this makes it back to Demetrios. Demetrios would have known at this point about how the Maccabees had been behaving. And when he hears that a compromise, a moderate Hellenizer, is spurring the same kinds of violence and disorder that started when the Jews were legitimately persecuted, he decides, as you would think any new monarch would, and that is with fierce and overwhelming force, now again, we're kind of going back in time a little bit here because we got a new king and Judah Maccabee is in the Gophna Hills doing terrorism against Hellenized Jews and Greeks. Instead of Demetrios going himself like Lysias did, he's going to send another general to take care of the Maccabean problem, kind of getting shades of Apollonius and Ciron and Nicanor and Georgius. But this... New general coming coming for Judah on the orders of Demetrios 
is a guy called Bakchides. Now, Bakchides is the governor of Mesopotamia, another part of the Seleucid Empire. And whatever forces he controlled are supplemented with more forces from the Seleucid army. And he heads into Jerusalem to settle this once and for all. Now, the Hasidim were the first Jews to make contact with Bakchides on his way into Jerusalem. This group of the Hasidim tell Bakchides that they're not going to accept the new high priest because it's from the Seleucid state. Now, we know that the Hasidim were generally supportive of this high priest, but this might be not true and included for to get extra sympathy by the authors of the Books of Maccabees for the Hasidim and the Jews generally to show how bloodthirsty Bakchides is. It may be true and just a bit of misplaced loyalty. We can decide amongst ourselves that we support this high priest, but you can't come here telling us to support this high priest. Either way, Bakchides decides these people need to die for this mistake. The Seleucid Mesopotamian Joint Forces Army slaughter a bunch of these Maccabean allies. Now, this is an attempt at shock and awe, right? You can understand why they do this. You can almost scratch your head as to why Antonacus Epiphanes and Lysias weren't behaving this way a bit earlier on. Seems positively Alexandrian. Well, turns out Antonacus IV and Lysias may have had, uh, may have had a better idea of the culture of Jerusalem and Judea than Bakchides and Demetrios do at this point because the massacre of Hasidim rallies Jews back to Judah in a way that with all of the losses so far, because Judah hasn't won anything in a while now. It looks like he has to some people, but you'd have to think that this is going to wear on his army. They know what's happening, but this murder of the Hasidim brings people back under Judah's banner in a way that probably would have been impossible even just a couple of months before this in this story. Now, Bakchide spends a good amount of time trying to root Judah and the Maccabean army out of the Gophna Hills where they're hiding. We don't get numbers, but this smoke em out campaign Bakchides is on here is tremendously successful. He kills a great deal of people trying to support the Maccabees who are fighting for them or who have been conscripted into service for him. But... Like it happened to Lysias twice, suddenly, Bakchides is called to Antinoch. He's needed to go suppress a rebellion. It's possible that Bakchides thought he had done his job here. He didn't kill any of the principal commanders of the Maccabees, and he would have known that. He didn't get Judah. He didn't get John. Eliezer's dead already, you know. And it kind of seemed like the Maccabees were just hiding. That's what they could do may have been reasonable to assume that he had done so well in his campaign through the Gophna Hills to root out these soldiers that whatever support Judah had gained from Bakchides coming into Jerusalem was gone now because obviously Judah couldn't protect anybody from this force. If that was the calculation that Bakchides made, he was terribly wrong while... Bakchides and Demetrios and the Seleucid army are putting down this rebellion. Judah and what's left of the Maccabean army come out of the Gophna Hills to great fanfare. There are still Hellenistic Jews in Judea and in Jerusalem, but for people who were kind of on defense, 
They're hardcore in Judas' camp now. No reconciliation can be possible, not after the murder of the Hasidim. Clearly, this new Seleucid administration is nowhere near as reasonable as the last one was. And they were the people who started this persecution in the first place. So, what's left of the anti-Hellenizers in Jerusalem are more resolute than ever. Now, Alchemos, the new high priest selected by Demetrios, does a lot of politicking in Jerusalem, does a lot of appeals to whoever will listen to try and stay on as high priest. But eventually, he's forced back into the Acre, just like Melanos was. Alchemos appeals to Demetrios, says the situation is untenable. Demetrios is getting a fast lesson into what a thorn in the foot the Maccabees really are for the Seleucid state here. Presumably, Backchides had proven himself too valuable for Demetrios to send back into harm's way into the Gophna Hills. So he's going to send another, and I love this from Wars of the Maccabees by John D. Granger. He calls Demetrios' response, sending another envoy come governor come commander to Judea. This man Demetrios is sending is going to be named Nicanor. Is it the same Nicanor who Judah defeated at Amos? We don't know. No one knows. Different people have different ideas. Demetrios had a Nicanor in his life. People think it's him. Who could possibly know? It can be really hard to get a sense of what Nicanor got up to in Judea because there's a huge difference in the story of Nicanor in First and Second Maccabees and... I'm going to put together my amalgamation of the two that I think is most likely, which I've kind of been doing this whole time, but the story of Nicanor is so different in both that I feel the need to point it out here again. Nicanor is appointed the governor of Judea by Demetrios, and while in Judea he is doing some politicking. He's getting some help from Alchemos, though Alchemos is kind of a thorn in his side at times. He's consolidating an anti Maccabee soft pro Hellenized Jewish coalition. Obviously the Maccabees can't let this keep happening, so he is eventually confronted by Simon, Judah's brother. In this confrontation, Simon is pretty easily pushed back by Nicanor's army. Now, there's no real clear numbers given for Nicanor, so you can assume that means he has a pretty gosh darn small army. After Nicanor defeats Simon, he is confronted by Judah. This is again at Beth Heron. Now, this army with Judah, you can assume, is the cream of the crop of the Maccabean fighters. Some of these guys have probably been at it as long as Judah. They're the people who have stolen or looted the best armor, either out of the treasury in the temple or from a fallen Seleucid foe. But unlike most of the battles the Maccabees have been in, they're not a ragtag group anymore. This is a real army that can form a real phalanx. They've done real training. It's not a top-tier training that a big imperial army would be able to give people, but training. These Maccabees can form into a phalanx and move properly, and they do. Judah and his Maccabee holy guard with him 
form up in a phalanx in an open field against Nicanor with his Greek army and destroys him, much like the other Maccabee victories. They say that Nicanor was, in fact, the very first person to die in this battle. And the only reason the Seleucids kept fighting was it took them a while to figure out that, oh, our commander's dead, we better get out of here. There it is again, that Maccabee war tactic, immediately killing the other commander, like a heat-seeking missile. Judah cuts Nicanor's head and hands off and takes it to show around that he had been successful against this latest Seleucid threat. I've also read that part of the reason for taking the head and hand of Nicanor is Nicanor was a lot more impressive than most of the foes Judah had run up against. You kind of get the sense that Demetrios is running a much more vicious military ship and that the people he's sending, Backchides is included in this, by the way, are a little bit more intense and a little bit more capable than what was coming from Antonacus. Judah has his first real victory here of a straight-up fight on a flat field. Everything so far that's been an out-and-out win that I feel comfortable saying the Mac Books of Maccabees call this a win, and I have no reason to believe that's not true. Because every other time they've come up against an army in the field, they say they win, but all the evidence and how they behave suggests they get mowed down. But, you know, here they came against a very impressive man with an army who... We have no reason to believe that the Maccabees had more men than Nicanor. It's possible they did, but probably a pretty fair fight, all things considered. A few thousand guys, six, seven, eight, ten, who knows. And Judah came out on top, and here's the head and right hand to prove it. And it's a little shocking to think that Judah's been at this revolt, struggle for independence, whatever you want to call it, for almost a decade, and hasn't had to win a fair fight in a field the way you'd expect endeavors like this in this era would entail. It's possible I'm not giving Judah enough credit for the imperial stage of his military career when he was quote-unquote rescuing the Jewish population. Maybe he did get into some real fair fights with two phalanxes squaring off or at least his phalanx forming up against a battle line. And it's not a knock on Judah to point out that he hasn't won one of these fair fights, as I'm calling them, so far in this conflict. If anything, it's impressive Judah can avoid dying (laughs) and not being able to win a fight like this for as long as he has. That's true for his army, too. As much as I think he's getting defeated a lot of the times where these Maccabees are claiming victories. You can only claim victory if enough of your guys make it out. And knowing how to retreat is a valid military strategy. It's just not one that gets played up in the holy books very often. It may be one of Judah's more amazing victories, just because he's never done it before. But it doesn't get the same recognition and love from the Judean population that he had been getting after his surprising victories. After Judah kills Nicanor, one of the first things he does is reach out to Rome again. Now, the last time he made an alliance with Rome, remember, Rome probably didn't take it too seriously. However, 
They probably told him to keep us up to date on things that are going on. We we support the struggle. Well, whatever support they offered was spiritual and not material. The last thing Rome wanted to do is get involved in a war on the side of rebels. However, remember, they don't like Demetrios. And Demetrios has been putting down a rebellion this whole time. Remember, Backchides was called back to help him in this cause. Well, right around now, Demetrios and Backchides are successful in putting down this rebellion. This rebellion, too, by the way, had a relationship with Rome, where Rome liked what they were doing, wanted to be kept abreast of all the goings-on in their activities, but we're not going to send you any money or men or anything like that. Bad news for the Maccabees, though, because Backchides is free to come back to Jerusalem now and be the next in a pretty long line at this point of Seleucid commanders who have come down to deal with the Maccabees. Now, Backchides, you could argue, had been the most successful in that he uh, is uh, still alive, number one. Most Seleucid commanders who have gone up against the Maccabees can't make that claim. But he was also largely successful, killed many Maccabees, arguably may have had them completely on the ropes and had to leave because of events outside of his control. So now Backchides is going to get a second crack at the Maccabees. He's going to be a little bit smarter about it this time. Judah has de facto control of Judea and Jerusalem. Instead of trying to smoke him out of the mountains like he was last time, Backchides stays a little bit away from Jerusalem and just starts ransacking the countryside. Eventually, this elicits a response from Judah. The books of Maccabees don't point out the irony that Judah is now going to rescue these people in the countryside that not too long ago, it was him out there murdering, robbing, circumcising. It may not have occurred to him at all. Anyway... Judah's army is probably very, very similar to the one he defeated Nicanor with. The cream of the Maccabee crop, he may have ballooned a little bit, it may not. Certainly they would have done more drilling in between the time Nicanor died and Backchides makes his way back to Judea. We know, and not necessarily from the books of Maccabees, but Judea is in absolute turmoil right now. This war that's been going on for the better part of a decade, the end of a sabbatical year, famine is starting to set in. So hard to say if Judah's army would have grown in those conditions, hard to imagine, but it could also be the only way to guarantee a meal for somebody is if they join the army. So Judah's numerically uncertain force is going up against backchides. And an army of what it says in First Maccabees is, are you ready for this? 20,000 men and 2,000 cavalry. Which you'll note is really reasonable. Probably a bit less than this, all things considered. Also possible, could have been a little bit more, but it's the number we get and it makes a lot of sense, which is a refreshing change of pace. Remember that Backchides has been in Judea before, so this all feels a little bit like a well-laid trap. He's found a spot with a good flat surface for his Mesopotamian and Seleucid force to fight on. The area has only one real access point for Judah to come from. And once he sees Judah's army, 
he immediately moves his camp up to only a kilometer away. Now, this is important because at this point, they're too close to one another. If either one of them move, they open themselves up to getting attacked when they are not in battle formation. This is one of the rarer times, to me anyway, that war feels like chess. Judah's in check. Something's got to happen here. Judah will deploy his phalanx and his cavalry in the classic Greek style with the phalanx as a central block of men flanked on both sides by cavalry. Judah is the head of the cavalry on his left side. Backchides, when he sees Judah deploying, will deploy his army in turn. Backchides will be at the head of his cavalry on the right side. So Judah and Backchides will be staring each other face to face. Now you get the feeling, here again, that this is part of a plan. It's not one that Judah came up with, though, because Judah is going to do what Judah has always done. He's going straight at Backchides like a heat-seeking missile. He just killed Nicanor, which nobody expected. Whatever shape Jerusalem's in, this is something Judah can do. He's done it before. At least he may tell himself that as he stares across the battle line at Backchides. These two armies meet. Judah goes after Backchides immediately. Now initially, when these two cavalry forces crash... The Maccabees and Judah are getting the better of it. They're pushing this cavalry back. It's hard to imagine Judah being the type of man who was ever really, truly surprised. All throughout this story, he's kind of been on top of things. Even when he's lost, he's been able to spin it like a win to us in the future and also seemingly to the people in Jerusalem who he winds up in control of a couple of different times throughout this story. But despite his ability for avoiding surprises so far in this story, I have to think Judah was really surprised at how easily he was cutting through the great Backchides cavalry. He was probably more surprised, though, when he looked around and realized he was far away from his battle line and he is completely surrounded by the Seleucid and Mesopotamian forces under Backchides control. It seems like some of Judah's cavalry would have been able to make their escape in this situation, and Judah was left with a very small number of men under his direct command in his last moments. We are told that Judah gathers those who are left around him to make one more suicidal run at Backchides. Judah and his remaining cavalry are wiped out to a man. It doesn't say so in the books of Maccabees, but you can assume his army breaks and runs the way so many Seleucid armies have broken and run after Judah has killed their commander. And this is the end of Judah Maccabee. The books of Maccabees kind of make it sound like Judah knew he was going to die here and allowed himself to be killed as part of the cause. And I'm willing to give Judah enough credit to accept that it's possible that in his last moments, he had a choice to run or to try and do something amazing. I think he's earned that a little bit. But what's more likely is he was outsmarted by a better general and killed unceremoniously, no more or less heroic than any other brutal warlord who dies in battle. Judah will go on to become a symbol for the Maccabean cause, which will become the Hasmonean cause, 
the remaining Maccabees will elect or choose Judah's brother, Jonathan, to be the next leader. He will be pushed across the Jordan, forced to recoup and come back later. Eventually, he will be murdered, and Judah's brother Simon will end up taking over, and it'll be Simon's son, who's also named John, who ends up as the first king of the Hasmonean dynasty. Judah and his children won't go on to rule the Hasmonean dynasty, but his DNA is all over this thing. It's a very violent and short-lived kingdom, a little bit like its founder, Judah, co-founder, I guess, with his father. The Hasmoneans will be fiercely independently Jewish. However, they will go back on a lot of disagreements with folks around them. They're willing to do business with Greeks all of a sudden, you know. The realities of rule setting in for these extremist Jews. Eventually, the Hasmonean kingdom will fall to the Romans, in a story that is a lot more famous than Judah, I would argue, but it depends on who you ask. You can make the case that the Hasmonean dynasty was always on a shaky foundation, and it was only a matter of time until someone bigger and stronger came and pushed it over, but you could make an alternative case that if it weren't for the Romans, who knows what would have happened. It's not like there were many peoples in the entire world who did well once Rome decided to take them over. But beyond the Hasmonean dynasty and self-rule for Jews in the 2nd century BCE, what does Judah mean to us, and what do the Maccabees mean? Earlier in this program, we talked about how Judah and his actions here maintained Judaism for several more generations, for sure. And I don't think it's possible the Jewish faith ever would have died out whether or not Judah did any of this. There were ten tribes in Israel, after all, and it was the Jews who came through culturally stronger, you could say, after displacement by the Babylonians centuries before this. But Judaism definitely would have been different if it weren't for the Maccabees. You can imagine modern Zionism being a lot different, especially. It's actually one of the places I've seen Judah or the Maccabees being talked about culturally or on social media and things like that is American Zionists talking about their fellow Maccabees all around the world. This isn't a politics show. We're not getting into Israel, but I feel comfortable saying whatever you think about the situation, that's kind of gross. Another place I see Judah in modern culture is people discussing the origins of Hanukkah and whether or not it's a grand Jewish celebration or something that is a little more complicated. I saw two writers arguing on social media about the Maccabees and the origins of Hanukkah, one of them claiming that if people really knew the story that we've been talking about this whole time, Hanukkah would be cancelled. And I think they meant in the cancel culture sense, not in the Christmas is cancelled because Daddy got laid off this year kind of cancelled. Other writers will point out that the Seleucids really were oppressing the Maccabees and Jews at the time. They had to resist, and this is what resistance looks like. And then you get into, well, if they were resisting the Seleucids, why were they killing so many Jews? And it's an interesting conversation. Of course, it's not at all my place on how to tell anybody how to interpret their own holy books, or any holy book, really, for that matter. I'm only reading about these events and these holy books and offering my thoughts. 
a professor named Daniel Schwartz has a amazing lecture on First and Second Maccabees, the books themselves up on YouTube, where he dives into what we can take away from these books. And one of the most interesting things I think he points out is that the difference between First and Second Maccabees is large, even though it's the same story. First Maccabees has the feel of a book from the Bible, but doesn't have any of the substance from the Bible. Or Second Maccabees is a lot more like the Bible, but doesn't sound as much like a biblical book. Professor Schwartz thinks this is because First Maccabees was written at court for the Hasmonean kingdom and was propaganda to lay out their story about how the Hasmonean dynasty came into the world. And Second Maccabees was for Jews still in exile. And the reason Second Maccabees feels much more substantively like the Bible is because that's where biblical Jewish culture developed, in exile, not in the Holy Land. I think there are implications in that idea that are beyond the scope of this show, but super fascinating to think about. The Maccabees aren't a popular story like they once were, and even when they were at their height, they weren't a Bible story, good and true. So the modern footprint they've left is necessarily smaller than so much else that's in the Jewish story. In the early 2010s, there was a movie planned about Judah and the Maccabees, which may have given it a wider cultural footprint. That movie was supposed to be written and directed by Mel Gibson, so it may not have helped give Judah Maccabee a wider cultural footprint and just been wildly anti-Semitic. Since I'm trying to come at this story from a perspective that's a bit free of religious dogma and cultural importance, I want to end by talking about something I brought up in the very first episode of this series. And that's that almost every writer's work I've come into contact has described Judah Maccabee at some point as a military genius. And I want to talk about whether or not I think that's true. Now, sue me for a bit of a cop-out answer here, but I think the answer is kind of, but also no. You can't take away any of Judah's victories. You can't really even take away the importance to the Jewish cause for thousands of years. He'll never be in the echelon of the greatest military commanders from ancient history. He just wasn't playing for big enough potatoes. He's not Alexander the Great with a massive army conquering the world. He is a guy with a band of rebels fighting in one small little speck of land in the Middle East. That said, he's almost more amazing to me in some way than your Alexander the Greats, your Julius Caesars, etc., because he starts this up from nothing. A lot of his genius, I don't think, was military, but organizational and religious. He was able to inspire all these people, or scare them into fighting with him. And that's what's so amazing and so terrifying about Judah Maccabee. I don't think he was a great genius, though he was very capable and very smart. But I think it's likely that all of his opponents were pretty capable and very smart. There's something about Judah, though, that sets him apart from everybody he went up against and a lot of other people in history. What's so scary and so amazing about Judah Maccabee is all he really did was believe in something. 
Thank you for listening to Religious Wars. This was our first series. I think most of the show is going to be something like this series. I've got a few in mind already. I'm still figuring out this whole podcasting thing, but I've been very excited by the response that I've gotten so far from just this first series. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any reason to reach out to the show, you can do that at religiouswar01 at gmail.com. It's religiouswar01 at gmail.com. If you know anybody who you think might enjoy this show, please let them know about it. Thank you for listening, and I hope you stick around for the next series. And I'm a god, I last year.